to the third and final part of Video Game Academy's discussion of Little Inferno with Benjamin Kozlowski and Wesley Shantz. Great, here we are back with the final installment of Little Inferno. Joining me is Ben. How's Hello. it going? I am well. And his um, cuckoo clock should be chiming in shortly here as well. Uh, yeah, not long. <laughs> it reminds us that time is always ticking ahead and the summer <laughs> is already waning uh, as we record this here at the tail end of uh, August. Uh, but hey, we've got big plans for the future. And, and before we get to those, we should try to wrap up Little Inferno. Um, for for our final uh, overview, then of this this couple of chapters of the game, could you give us like a, a outline sketch of what we've got going on here, Ben? Sure. This is where the game gets interesting. Um, we left off with Sugarplums's unexpected demise, but <laughs> fairly sure and or fairly shortly into the next couple of catalogs, we discover that she is not actually dead at all. Um, She's, or we start getting these these messages from a cryptic person whose face is obscured and distorted. Yes. Um, messages telling us that it's time, it's time for us to let go, and it's time for us to burn our own house down. <laughs> um, and she she initially asks for a pair of sunglasses. Those are the final. That's the final item that she asks for because apparently wherever she is, it is bright and sunny, mm. which is itself kind of surprising because we've had this looming like snowstorm that never ends hanging over our heads. Um, but as we get through those last couple of catalogs, she tells us to take all of the items that we have sent her at various points over the course of the game. You burn them as their own combination. And when you do the face in the background of the, of the little inferno opens its eyes and stares deep into our souls. And the <laughs> entire thing that we heard on the other side of the wall happens to us as the entire uh, fireplace sort of burns and explodes and destroys itself. Yeah. At which point we are thrust into an entirely new phase of the game. Um, we have an avatar, which we see from the third person instead of that, constant first person perspective of the of the fireplace and we walk him around just like it's a one of those old point and click adventure games although there's no real elaborate interface you just click on various people or interactable objects and they talk to you um so you walk the streets for a little bit interacting with a few people um you interact with the postman you walk past a family that is suspiciously recognizable as somebody else's family from way back when um, and at last you make it to tomorrow corporation where the mysterious arm person lets you into the facility and you get to meet miss nancy the leader of the corporation before she takes off on her rocket flight into space <laughs> um, and then you leave the corporation and you are ushered into the hot or the hot air balloon of the weatherman who has been talking to you this whole time and he takes you somewhere new and yeah. that's very much where the game ends. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can keep playing. Like I turned it back on afterwards and there's like a um a sun, right? The sun symbol that we've been familiar with from 
the Tomorrow Corporation's uh, trademark all throughout. And the question they start asking now is, is that sun rising or setting? Yeah. Which I thought was a really cool kind of riff on this, this question about, you know, what's more dangerous than fire? Uh, what's going on? <laughs> am I really, you know, um, burning all of my stuff as I play this game? You know, um, mm. am I wasting my time? Am I learning something or not? So there, there's just a, a brilliant um, synthesis of all of that in the image of the sun that's on the horizon that you're, you're headed for with the weatherman. Um, I, I loved the ending of this game. I thought it was so cool how it completely, yeah, shifts the gameplay and yet um, maintains a lot of the same kind of quirky humor and uh, unsettling vibes and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, to totally bring... and thematically, it's very consistent, yeah. even though all of like the world has changed in front of you. It, yeah, and it, it just... Um, it makes me wonder wonder a few things actually, and I don't know if you have gotten different endings, but do you know if there are different endings and, and how they differ? Um, um, are there some Easter eggs there? Like if you have the, the hug coupon, does, does she actually give you a hug? Yeah, that is the one variation. There, there aren't different endings, but she will in fact hug you if you have oh. the coupon. Um, and as a result, you know, I, I know this now, so I always retain the hug coupon. Um, so Miss Nancy, like she, she sends it to you, I think fairly early, like back in catalog two or three, she's like, here's a coupon for a free hug. And you know, because you literally do this to everything that you receive, most people will just set it on fire. <laughs> um, because you know, that's your primary way of interacting with literally everything in the game. There's no indication that any of this can be, can be held onto. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, because your inventory is so limited, it's actually like difficult to retain objects. It, it's inconvenient, especially for when you're trying to aim for some of those bigger combos that require like three items and you're trying to buy other stuff at the same time. So oh, there's the clock. Hey -oh. So it's, it's very sort of subtle that this is the one item that you actually should retain and if you do in fact hold on to it the entire game it sort of magically transports itself to your unseen inventory when you're walking around hmm. and she, she'll ask she's like hey um, did you keep that hug coupon that I sent you and if you do she says she just like reaches over and gives you a hug and it's <laughs> like it's kind of you know uncomfortable it's meant to be because basically all it is like when you're talking to her she's always like shrouded in shadow you can't actually see her face until she finally steps into the light when she announces that you she've got a dream bigger that once you've realized everything that you dream you've got a dream bigger um but like that when you give her the hug coupon she steps into the light and there's even this little like cutscene of her reaching around you awkwardly in that very particular old lady way um and you, you kind of get the sense of like you know she's this old woman pinching your cheeks you know like as a 10 year old boy and you feel not great about it but it's still it's cozy like yeah it's the only friendly interaction you have with a person face to face in this entire game um that is so yeah so strange then that um you get all these messages from sugar plumps after her resurrection there that you can't 
uh, go and meet her at the end of the game. That's that's kind of what I was expecting was going to happen, that you'd reunite with her at this beach where she is. Um, if I misunderstood something, is she actually like communicating with us from beyond the grave in some sort of a paradise or um, or not? <laughs> Maybe yeah. she in the... The, uh, the the bad place uh, and it's very warm and sunny there too um, you know <laughs> what, yeah. what do you think about that that she doesn't actually physically appear again in the game um, I've always read it as you know she has found this sort of like sunny paradise like place that her house like yours burned down but she was unharmed uh-huh. um, and you know apparently she got her deal with the weatherman too so I I've always con- thought that like by um by taking the weatherman's hand by climbing into his balloon by being sort of like carted off towards the sun you're ultimately going to join her but it's true that you never do in fact see that happen there's no indication that that's where you go um and in fact the weatherman almost stresses the opposite that you don't he doesn't know where you're going but that's kind of the point um so you know, again, to use that image of is the sun rising or is the sun setting, like throughout this game, it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I remember when it first came out, uh, one of the reviewers that I saw talking about Little Inferno and, you know, gushing about it as sort of this un, unrecognized gem had mentioned that it was like this rare piece of media that is pre-apocalyptic. Like we have all of these Mad Max, Mad Max-esque stories about the post-apocalyptic wasteland, and you have Fallout, which is like this famous post-apocalyptic video game. Um, and there are just all of these various movies and books and things set in, you know, after the cataclysm. But Little Little Inferno is about the days before the cataclysm. Um, that like you're in the cataclysm. It's been snowing for years, and you don't know why. Um, and the great thing about that, that setting or rising sun metaphor is that, you know, when you end one, one world, it begins another, um, wherever you go, wherever the weatherman takes you, it, it's, it's the end of one phase of your life and the beginning of another. Um, and there's no promise that it's going to be good. In fact, the weatherman again suggests that, you know, he doesn't know where we're going. He doesn't know what it's going to be like. It might be very difficult. I mean, there's no indication that it's going to be easy, but you know, just like we kept getting assurances throughout the game, this can't last forever. This is, this is the end Mm -hmm. um, and the beginning. So whatever comes now will also not last forever. This is no happily ever after situation, but then they went on and did a new thing. Yeah. And so even Miss Nancy, right, who embodies sort of (laughs) this bizarre corporation that you've been interacting with throughout the game, she goes off to her next thing. Um, Yeah. And I wonder, I don't know um, if you've seen or played these games, they've uh, created another couple of games that look like they've got the same kind of aesthetic and may take place in the same universe. I'm not sure. There's yeah. the um, human resource machine, 7 billion humans. 7 billion humans, yeah. And welcome to the information superhighway, which is forthcoming, I guess. Have you played okay. uh, or seen much about those? I have. As a devoted fan of, um, of Kyle Gabler and all of his projects, I bought them up pretty quickly after they came out. Um, like I pre-ordered 7 billion humans after playing human resource machine, which I like bought on day one. Because these are all really inexpensive games. 
um, they're they're programming games, and the the theme that you see in Little Inferno is kind of reflected in them, but as in a glass darkly, um, it, it's not as explicit. So they are set in in a sort of hyper corporate uh, post apocalyptic sort of world, but you get very little glimpses of the outside. Like the couple of story beats that take place in those games are are as much jokes as anything else, um, and it's it's more directly satirizing cor- corporate culture. But like mechanically, these are these are games about programming. Like you get you get a dude, a little avatar person in a human resource machine and you program commands for him and you solve puzzles by having him fulfill the commands. So, you know, this goes back to like, there's there are long traditions of this, like in the old Dr. Brain games, once upon a time, they would do little programming puzzles. Um, There's, I forget the guy's name. Uh, He's, he did space cam and he did, um, Magnum Opus. He's basically turned his like he he's an indie game developer who has basically a cottage industry of programming type games. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed like both Gabler's Human Resource Machine and Seven Billion Humans as well as these, but they're they're a very different style, much more cerebral. Um, but again, they're a puzzle game, so less less opportunity for world building. Um, but sort of the conceit in both Human Resource Machine and 7 Billion Humans is that um, robots have, like, ascended and are now doing all of the work. Like, there is no more need for human labor on Earth, and the humans are so upset about it that they demand work. So the best thing that the robots can come up with is this crappy menial labor where you literally just program them like a robot and they do all the tasks that you tell them to do. So it's this fantastic little ironic inversion where all of your bosses and all of the corporate leaders and all of the people you run into in the hallways are robots giving you specifically robotic commands. Um, So, so yeah, again, it's kind of got this, this, if this is the future that little Inferno offers, it's a pretty bleak one. Um, But it's got, uh, the same, the same sort of satirical humor that you've seen throughout all of these games, right? Yeah, no, but that seems pretty prescient uh, as far as the kinds of concerns that people actually have nowadays. Yeah. Um, and so, I'm, I think we should totally investigate those in some detail down the line here. Um, if they're anything like Little Inferno, and even if they don't directly continue the story, if they, if they go further with those kinds of insights and themes that's that's what it's all about i think because then you know it allows you i think rightly as you say to to imagine if you like the future for this particular character and his um the others that he he's met along the way um uh including the weatherman who Mm -hmm. i think we could probably say a little more about now that we've seen what happens here at the end including sugar plumps and someone else's family but i think I want to go back to the the corporation setting for a sec here because it, it is super interesting how um, so the gate operator to start with yes. uh, <laughs> provides one of the coolest little set pieces in the whole game right it has nothing yeah. to do with the gameplay it has everything to do with you know the fun of this game where mm-hmm. you have to you have to say 
in, in the exact right way, the thing that he wants you to say to him, which is gate operator, open the gates. Right? And it's, it's very epic. Um, and when he does it, uh, it's worth it. Right. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, but he's also, it, it appears that your character remembers him or his silhouette from the school bus. Mm-hmm. which we've dwelt on a bit already. Um, so he's like the, the model for the school bus driver, <laughs> apparently, mm-hmm. uh, waving these, these long spindly hands around uh, in, in this kind of silhouette fashion. Um, so in some way, he also, I don't know, is like leading you to learn something, I guess, like if that's yeah. what the school bus driver's doing. And I thought that, you know, that, that connected too with, with Miss Nancy's rocket ship, because there's that rocket ship of learning in one of the last, mm-hmm. maybe the last um, sequences of items you can buy, right? So, so what is going on there? And you see the the diagrams when you walk through the hallway. Yeah. Uh, some of their their products are are they really you know helping you follow your dreams, gain epic story in narrative of a uh, an everyday life? You know, are, are they providing something deep and special, or are they this kind of heartless corporation um or a little of both (laughs) yeah it's a really fascinating a really fascinating sort of world that the tomorrow corporation turns out to be because you know you like we in american culture always imagine corporations with like this 80s orwellian vibe where you know it's just all these faceless drones doing you know office work and while it's sort of been updated in contemporary culture like now that we've got the whole you know google model of corporate interactions with like beanbag chairs and people you know in non-traditional workspaces like these are the these are the two extremes and on the and we kind of both we kind of turn our nose at both of them. Like, you know, the one is too, is too conformist and the other is too kitschy. Um, But what makes tomorrow corporation so interesting is that everyone is so earnest there. Like you've got the switch operating guy who wants you to announce dramatically switch operator, open the gates. And like you, you say it a couple of times and he's like, Oh, come on, you got to do better than that. Like this is a momentous event. This is a big deal. And I just think, you know, like this is, this is a famously menial task. This is the guard at the, you know, at the checkpoint before you get into a military base or something his literal only job is to pull the switch and the the gate opens but dang if it's not the most dramatic gate opening thing that you have ever seen he turns this menial task into something momentous and exciting and dramatic and you know it plays this huge elaborate music and there's like fireworks and like the gates slowly creep open and when they finally reach the fully open slot there's like this huge music blast like it's really impressive and i find it such a such an a refreshing alternative to both of those visions of corporate culture that we see like we expect the sort of soul grinding or soul being sucked out of you from doing the same thing over and over again on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's like this sort of false creativity where, you know, they're trying to actually turn what creative and soulful uh, work you want to do into something that can be marketed and palletized. But here on the other hand, you have someone who literally lives for this moment 
Like it is a crappy, crappy job and he relishes every time he gets to do it. Um, it's, it's very Chestertonian, like turning the mundane into something profound. Um, and you can see that all over tomorrow corporation. Like you talk to the secretary and the secretary, she's writing a novel. Like it's the second novel in her trilogy, starting with the terrible secret, which of course you burned in order to get to this point. Um, and I, I think like it, it's such an interesting reversal that, you know, we, we, we imagine corporations as being these faceless entities that produce things for us to use, to express ourselves, like we buy clothes at Walmart and then mix and match them to make our own fashion, our own style. Or, you know, we buy these mass produced books from Random House or the other big publishing companies so we can write about them on the internet and turn them into part of our identity. Mm-hmm. But this flips it around. Like the entirety of the Little Inferno game, when you were sitting in front of the fireplace, you just burned this crap. Like you didn't care where it came from. You didn't know where it came from. It didn't mean anything to you. You didn't make it mean anything to you. But then it turns out that there's this whole story behind it, that all these passionate people have been working on this, that every everything that you set fire to not caring about it had a story behind it, had meant something. Um, and I think that that's a really, a really important way of looking at things that, you know, it's more than just consumerism. Like if anything, you know, you thought this was a game about corporations, but it turned out to be about you and the way that you relate to them. Um, so, you know, the secretary, especially like you get, this glimpse of a rich and involved life. And at the same time, she's easily manipulated. She is totally a drone. Um, Like you, you talk your way past her. uh, She's like, uh, you can't go up the elevator. It's only for employees. And then you're like, can I go to the bathroom? And she's like, sure. It's up the elevator. (laughs) And you know, she doesn't even look up from her typing. She's like simultaneously having a conversation with you and doing some kind of menial, like, computer work and writing her novel in a second window and you like you question her about it like how do you do this and she's like eh, it's just you know who i am it's what i do this is what this is what means something to me um so it's just and then you finally meet miss nancy and she's like the apotheosis of this mm-hmm. you know she in making all of her money is you know she's in that position that we would expect you know the the villainous boss I mean, we had that doll that we set on fire and it's like, it was the evil corporate mastermind the whole time. And like the whole joke is he's insidiously evil, but then we meet the actual head of the tomorrow corporation. And she's this sweet old lady who is so vivacious and is totally blowing this taco stand because she's got better things to do than hang around here and make money. Like she did everything that she always wanted to do. And now she's blasting off and dreaming bigger. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I love that she um, she has that that hint to you also, right? Like you can get a hug from her. Yeah. Um, you might not have thought that was real, right? It was just another piece of paper, but it turns out that it does have a real effect. And and the one, as you said, the one interaction that you have, like physically intimate in the game, now it depends upon that little piece of paper that <laughs> you yeah. just got in the mail and, and didn't give a second thought to. And it, I think that sort of 
points out for the player, if they weren't aware of it before, that each of these items, yeah, has a, has a story behind it. If you, if you pay attention, those stories come together. Um, that's highlighted also, right, by the, the final combo, right, the four item combo yeah. <laughs> of, of Sugar Plumps's um, items that she asked for from you that causes the glitch in, in, the, in the little Inferno entertainment system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is just delightful. Um, so there's, there's, you know, the, the essence of the thing on its own and then the way that the things sort of fit together in combination um, helps to bring out that potential for, for human interaction and for human, you know, dreams, making those dreams a reality, right? It, it's, it's really a lovely sentiment and it's really well done how, how they portray it there for you and hint at it in, in case you missed it, right? Like, you can replay this game and get a lot more out of it, even if there's just that one slight thing that actually changes the outcome uh, of the of the ending a little bit. Um, and I I thought you know standing with her, looking out of that that window, that again is the is the the symbol for the corporation, right? It's that yeah. that half circle that reminds you that you know what you think of as the sunset or sunrise is actually you know, the planet you're on turning and going around in, in space and this enormous adventure that we've only begun to, to just touch the surface of, right? And yeah. she's off to explore it more. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the, the very final item of a lot of the catalogs seems to have to do with that as well. Um, you well, know, the final item in the game is the sun. Is the, the miniature sun, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. And it's, it's played importantly too like when you drag it onto into the little inferno fireplace there's this music that plays while it is there yes. um and even the way that you interact with it like it's already on fire it's the one item in the entire game that is already burning uh -huh. you, you cannot change its its state it is already the case but what's especially interesting about it is while you know it sits there and it plays this music that is simultaneously kind of haunting and kind of reassuring um, and you can bring any number of other items and they'll do the same gravity thing that we've seen with, with the other planets and the galaxies. But, you know, as soon as they get close to the sun, they catch on fire, as you would expect. <laughs> um, but then it sits for a while. You can't do anything to it. And then it explodes. Yeah. And it's gone. Not because you could do anything about it. Not because you were in control of the situation, but because that's the way it is. Yeah. Because, you know our sun will eventually explode in its own time and there is not much we can do about it. And that, that finality paired with the sort of warmth and it's a truly powerful symbol and image. Yeah. Just, you know, like here you are at the end of the game, you stick the sun on the screen and it's, you just wait. That's all you can do. Um. <laughs> you're not in control as much as you can light as many fires as you want um you you get the key right to to beating the game you get it from this this person you never really met right your neighbor um who you probably didn't think much of at first but turns out she's like this like dying and resurrecting goddess somehow <laughs> it's she uh she tells you how to beat the game how to how to open the um the eyes of the back of the fireplace that you've probably noticed there all along mm -hmm. and and of course yeah like the final item is this thing that is um of its own volition right uh, already alight yeah I, I think that's well so i didn't get to 
all of the combos in the game either. <laughs> but I think that together, the um, the sense that like you're getting something from outside of you that you weren't aware of um, is is one of the kind of twists that comes at the end of this game. And I think the uh, the mailman is another way, or the postman, right? Like, mm -hmm. He he's this character that you had no idea was there at all, but is yeah. is strongly implied in the actual workings of the game. Um, he must be there. Uh, and it turns out you get to, you get to talk to him a little bit and <laughs> you notice that he smells familiar. Mm -hmm. um, that to me, it was just a, a beautiful little, um, like I think maybe unconscious allusion to the, mm -hmm. the smells like elves passage in the Hobbit, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The Bilbo notices. I thought that was so cool. It's like this thing that the game cannot possibly like give you, right, a smell, um, but that you can, again, kind of imagine your way into and then maybe like maybe notice a little bit more as you play it again, like all of the things that you're burning, like what that would actually be like. Um, mm. It would assault you, right? Yeah. And in the real world, you know, you, that's a that's a sense that you probably don't don't do as much with as you really could that, that sort of can enrich real life um, if you just remember it's there if you think about it uh, if you indulge in it once in a while no now uh, with the mailman he seems to be uh, one of the first people that you meet once you leave your house right he's kind of like the first I thought like gives you the sense that everything is not hopeless uh, in this world because there is somebody who's operating outside of it in what looks like a pretty healthy fashion. Um, and he's a kind of a, a Santa Claus figure too, right? Because he, he brings yeah. everything that everybody wants to them um, and, and does, it, does it without um, asking anything in return, really. You know, he's just kind of this generous um, sprite who's there. Um, but at the same time, he's like, it's unclear what his um, role in this hierarchy is. Like if he is somebody like you who um, is, is taking stuff from the corporation or if he's somebody who's paid by the corporation or if he's just totally outside of it, if he's like his own um, thing, you know, mm -hmm. in that case, he, he reminds me a little bit more actually of, of Tom Bombadil, mm -hmm. right, in the Tolkien uh, world, uh, this like other power that you had no idea was there, but, but is instrumental all along. Um, yeah, what do you think of, of his place in the, in the cosmos of Little Inferno? Yeah, he's, he's a really interesting character. Um, like, I definitely see the Santa Claus connection and even the Tom Bombadil connection to some degree. He does sort of stand over all of what's going on. Um, but I'm also, like, he's also shrouded from you. Like, he doesn't talk a lot about himself. You, you can only sort of extrapolate at his role, and just like you were saying. I mean, you don't even get to see his face. Like, you literally interact with him as he's carrying a giant bunch of boxes in front of his face, you know, in a sort of Dr. Seuss way, um, which you would expect based on the fact that like you're constantly bombarding him with requests for stuff all the time. Um, and I, I find it interesting that, you know, the game 
the game has you it like stuck in this person's perspective for literally like two and a half hours. And then finally you bring your house down and you get the third person perspective and you see yourself, you become self-aware, so to speak. And then when you meet the postman, he's most interested in talking about you. Um, like when you ask him questions, when you, when you mention that, you know, he smells familiar, he, he is more interested in saying, you know, yeah, I was there the whole time. I was the one who, who would leave packages right next to you and walk away and you never even knew that I was there. Um, and there is something sort of mysterious about that. Something sprightly, as you said, like the, the elves and the shoemakers spring to mind of, you know, them coming out and doing all of his work for him. And he never even knew that it was happening. He just sort of tacitly accepts this miraculous boon. Um, and, and you do the same thing. Like on the one hand, you're taking him for granted and that's not good. But on the other hand, he doesn't seem to mind. Um, he's not upset about it. He's more generous. He's almost paternal or maternal. Like he just gave because he wanted to give and you took because you didn't think that there was anything wrong with taking. Um, so like what, what his home life is, I cannot at all extrapolate. I don't (laughs) think we're given enough. Um, but it's sort of this, this reawakening that, you know, not only were you, are, are you now self-aware when you weren't before, but that whole time there was a system in place. Um, like if anything, the role that he probably best connects to in Tolkien is Strider. Yeah. Um, because the hobbits, they're protected. Like they don't know that they're protected. They take it for granted. And you get all these people grumbling and Bree when they're passing through like, well, you know, there's scary stuff coming through lately. And everyone's like, yeah, bad folk. We don't like that at all. And they, they never bother to think that, you know, for generations, the striders, they're the ones who have been keeping out the bad forces. They're the ones that have been fighting the witch king of Angmar for generations and generations. Um, you are a hobbit. You are protected. You are receiving all of the benefits in a dark, scary world. You were, you know, staving off the evil with, by setting all your toys on fire. And you never question this until you can't help but question it until you're woken up. I am. And the postman is, he is your protector. He made that happen. He made it so you didn't have to turn around um, and see what was actually going on around you. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, the game isn't judgmental about this. It's not like you were a terrible person when you were sitting there not thinking of anyone but yourself, but it's like gently reminding you, yeah, there's more to it than that. You know, this whole consumerist paradise that you have been enjoying is the result of a lot of hard work by a lot of people doing things that they love in many cases, but also trying their best to protect you, trying to make you happy. That Yeah, the I mean, the way that the communication takes place in this kind of in-between space of, of physical, right, letters, um, but also, uh, you know, of course, electronic and internet communications like mm-hmm. that's how you get the game right <laughs> you yep. download it uh and then the sounds that happen when you get letters back and forth and they start to malfunction it, it sounds like they're actually digital in some weird way mm-hmm. you know so there's this kind of like mixing of levels there that i think yeah is is really interesting um with the the postman kind of to, to have him embody that to an extent uh he, he gets to be at once human, but also something, you know, transcending that in, in some bizarre way. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, and he gets to go around to all all of the different houses, right, uh, and drop off these boxes um, in a way that you know breaks all the physical rules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it can't work in much the yeah. same way as Santa Claus. Yeah, you you pay him the um, the little stamps, right? Mm. You give him those. I guess, like, while he's already on the way or something. <laughs> and he magically comes faster. <laughs> he comes immediately in, in most cases. Yeah, so, I don't know. But so then the, the, the little Inferno fireplace, you know, when it malfunctions, um, it actually just sort of brings to the fore all of these kind of bizarre um, in, interactions that, that we had had going on all along. Right. It, it breaks down the way that a machine does, but also is this thing on the screen for the player um, that like you have to maybe the last thing you actually have to burn is the little drop down um, points uh, like scrolly thingy. <laughs> right? Yeah, they all malfunction. You have to literally like break them off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's what finally does it. Um, I, I thought that the, the eye opening there um kind of hinted at the same sort of light the blinding light right that um mm-hmm. sugar plums talks about and, and it's what you see you know as the the rocket ship goes up so mm-hmm. so again there's this like kind of suggestion that there's there's something else there right um that's so bright you can't you can't look at it it's you can't see it in a different way than 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 you not being able to see the face of the the postman or the gate operator, but, but, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I find um, especially striking and a little bit haunting is that one of the, one of the last combos that you can get, it might be the last one is called futures. So bright. mm. Um, And it's the sun and the sunglasses. Of course. And it's just like, it's this interesting little little just tidbit that a you're talking about the future, which is of course hugely thematically important for this end game, but also you know the sunglasses continuously represent a sort of a sort of way to cope with how bright the future is, like sugar plumps needs you to send her sunglasses um, while she's hanging out on the beach, and all of the successive pictures of her that you see are her wearing the sunglasses and you know fashionista style. Um, but like, again, coming back to that image of the sun, which you grab and you stick it on the screen and it just explodes after a certain period of time, you know, it takes a certain amount of protection to be able to deal with that fact, the, you know, fact that the future is very bright and very exciting and very, and very much full of possibility, but also dangerous and like there is an end in sight. Um, it is potentially very destructive. Um, and yet you've got to, you got to do it anyway. <laughs> like you got to get on board with that weatherman and you got to sail off into the sunset or the sunrise or whatever it turns out to be. And, and you've got to face the next day. Um, that that's, that's not an option. You can't, you can't go back to the little inferno fireplace after you've burned your house down. No, like, unless right. Uh, you, you take that hint, right? You, you sort mm-hmm. of, you get to have it both ways, but because it's a game yeah, um, and that's fine, I suppose. But I mean, I think, yeah, the larger point is well taken, right? Like you, you have to move on. 
you can do so stylishly with your sunglasses on now that you're like, uh, if you're like sugar plumps uh, or you can, you know, sort of float along like the weatherman or, or go f- blasting off like Miss Nancy, but it's one way or another, you're, you're, you've got to go. Um, and well, I, I think it's to their credit that the, the developers have gone on to produce more stuff since then. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't just kind of rested on, this, this really big success of, of Little Inferno. Um, and they've done it, obviously, in ways that aren't just direct rehashes, because that would be, again, sort of like contradicting the whole premise of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, whenever you want to revisit this world, you can. It's, yeah. it's there. It's like this little thing that you can go back to. And, you know, I think it's cool that you get to share this with other people. You can um, tell others about this game that's out there. Uh, it's uh, it's a kind of um, Plato's cave scenario, right? You yeah. go back into the cave and you uh, turn other people around to go after the sun. It's mm-hmm. it's this thing you pay forward in that way. Yeah. Now I hope that that's what we've accomplished in some small way here. Uh, if anybody listening here is moved to go and play the game and um, talk about it and think about it. Uh, that's, Strongly encouraged. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all to the good. I think um, I would also. I think we we kind of touched on this a number of times, uh, but the the weatherman um, before we depart here is somebody we need to go back and and think about some more. So his role throughout the game has been that of a kind of uh, warning, right, about what's going on outside. Um, again, yeah, I think you're right. Like he's, he too is not doing so in a moralizing fashion so much as just um, raising the stakes for, for what people are doing um, mm-hmm. and, and, and imploring us to kind of be aware. Um, he is in some way prognosticating the future, right? Like mm-hmm. he can sort of deliver some advance notice that, you know, something unusual is about to happen. The sun is, mm-hmm. is starting to appear. Um, but he also, you know, clearly is um, involved in some larger adventure uh, beyond just like, here is what's going on. Um, I, I think he, he seems to want to bring people along with him, right? Like that, that's literally what, what you end up doing is, is hopping aboard there. And so what, what is that about? Like if, if the, the mailman is this kind of giving and generous sprite, you know, what is the weatherman up to there? You know, does he in some way protect um, or does he just provide a kind of um, a transcendence, right? And on to something bigger. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me about him in the early catalogs is his role as observer. Um, like he repeats at the end of all of his correspondence that he is, you know, over the smokestacks, over the city, um, that he can see everything. So when Sugar Plumps's house goes up in flames, he he sees it. He reports yeah. it. Um, he, he and you know even even when you when you like flip through his correspondence, it plays it plays this music and I think there's like a helicopter sound effect that frequently plays along with it. So you get this sort of like, this is news channel five, like going to our traffic copter, like 
you you have this very clear point of reference where he is the one who is you know observing and reporting but then you know you get to the end of your walking tour of tomorrow corporation and you walk up and down the hills and you you come to literally the end of the world like it, it looks just like that picture from from the old shell silverstein where the sidewalk ends and it's just like <laughs> this cliff and nothing is visible beyond it. And then he just swoops down in his balloon and carries you away. Um, so on the one hand, he definitely has this observational role. Like he, he is sort of the passive reporter of what's going on. But on the other hand, he has this sort of like care on the ferryman role. Ah, exactly. um, and, you know, I, I think again, not to like completely wear out our Tolkien references, but um, Kirdan the shipbuilder, the guy who like builds all the ships that take the elves into the west yeah. you know, he has a very similar role like he never appears in any of the Lord of the Rings stories Like he, there's never a point where they're like, and then he showed up to the White Council and you know, contributed <laughs> his bit, like you, you even get the sense that the couple of times that the, that the council has met he hasn't even bothered to show up like he doesn't even care um, but you know, if you follow the deep lore, he's the one who gave the ring to Gandalf. So he's got his own sort of protective role. Um, he's just spreading it around and also doing the work of taking people off of middle earth. Um, and the weatherman has this very similar sort of role. Like he observes, he does not interfere. He does not interact, but when people are ready to leave, he's ready to take them. Um, like, he is there for the people who do emerge from the cave. He is the one who ferries them on to greener pastures, be that, you know, a metaphor of death or a metaphor of progress. Hmm. Um, so yeah, like he's still cryptic and he's, he's sort of framed. He's like wearing the big goggles and he has the sort of like gentlemanly persona. I'm not sure if he has like a cane that he's waving around, but I kind of imagine him with one. I yeah, remember I him. So. With one. Yeah. yeah. So um, he kind of has this like 19th century Victorian explorer vibe going on, um, especially because, you know, one of the things that we burned was the gentleman explorer and his glasses <laughs> and his top hat and his cane. Um, he's kind of an obvious point of reference for us. Yes. So, you know, you, you get the sense that he's got an adventurous life. Like he probably made the same move that you did, only he did it a long time ago. And this is where he settled. This is what it means to be an adult for him. This is what it means to have, you know, quit being like coddled by the postman and instead being, being a person no, seizing yeah. his future. I, I like that. Absolutely. Like he's somehow a picture of what you could be in the future, mm -hmm. right? That you um, are, are this kind of greenhorn, um, but you're going out into the world. And if you, play your cards right, you might wind up as, as cool as the weatherman. Mm. Uh, or Miss Nancy, for that matter. <laughs> and, well, so the, um, the game ends with the credits, which are extremely brief, mm -hmm. because there's not many people, really, who worked on this game. It, it's a pretty small operation. Um, but there is, like, you know, there's a team there, and each person contributes. Um, and it seems to kind of leave you, again, with maybe a few things left to do as far as replay value to get a completionist, um, you know, check mark off your, um, your list there. Um, I don't know 
that that alone accounts for the the value of this game as far as like replaying it mm-hmm. because again i think you get a lot more out of it in terms of the the reading into stuff that you can do when you mm-hmm. go back and really look at it carefully um i hope that that other people think that way like you know not just like people who read tolkien books and stuff like that right, <laughs> but right. just like normal people you know who like to play games on their phones uh, and all that good stuff, you know, I think that this game provides a kind of bridge to that sort of reading um, Mm. potentially, which I, you know, again, like anything that can do that is to me, like among the best things that that there are. Mm. Um, It doesn't have to be itself super deep, although in some ways it is for it to lead you to the, the ways of reading and thinking about things that, that are, you know, that do reward, yeah. kind of deep analysis and and even introspection or, or contemplation right yeah. there's there's no overt like religious thing going on here but it's totally possible to read that in to some mm-hmm. of the things in this game there's no overt um championing of of everyday life the way that gk chesterton writes about so beautifully right and and tolkien too but that is totally there if you if you start to look at it um and i i don't think that's just because you know, we read those books, um, but because this game, I think, teaches you to, to yeah. look at it that way. It's not subtext, it's text. Like, yeah. that, the arc of your, of your avatar, your character, is, you know, learning to see a bigger world and going out into it. Yeah, and <laughs> um, do, do you know, if you get all of the combos, does anything happen? Yes. Okay. You get a mouse pad. What? A mouse pad? (laughs) Yeah. Miss Nancy sends you a Tomorrow Corporation official branded mouse pad. Wait, I want that mouse pad. (laughs) Yeah. You you can set it on fire. It's the only thing that it does. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That's still pretty cool. All right. So so things you can do beyond that, right? You you can get a free hug from Miss Nancy, although it costs a coupon. Uh, You can get the mouse pad. I guess you can, you know, listen to and talk about, you know, this game with your friends. Um, you can also like go and listen to the soundtrack, which we've we've talked about quite a bit. Um, definitely re- rewards close listening and also just chilling out and listening. Mm-hmm. Um, what else would you say to to do next to somebody who's who's come to the end of this adventure? What what is your recommendation as to where to go in your weather balloon? Yeah. Um... I guess, I guess there are two directions that you can take it. And th- these are not options. These are both things that you can do. Um, the first thing, I mean, we touched on a little bit. You can share it. Um, like, again, this is a really inexpensive game. It's available on all sorts of phones and, like, every device under the sun at this point. Like, I think they released it on Switch, and I know it was on Wii U, and it's on the PC, and, you know, I don't even know half of the consoles that it's on these days. So, you know, you can definitely share it. And this is, that's one I found especially rewarding. I mean, I've shared it with you. Like, I was the one who, who pitched it to you. I've also shared it with my wife, who hates video games, to be perfectly <laughs> blunt about it. She doesn't have the sort of, you know, uh, long-practiced coordination of controller to screen that, you know, anyone sort of raised on these things has. But she really enjoyed it. 
because it does not require like lightning fast reflexes. It does not require the sort of skill to navigate your Goron around the treasure chests at the end of Majora's Mask. Oh. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it's not frustrating. It is always rewarding. It, it like there's a very clear direct feedback loop. Um, and again, like to sort of come back to that platonic metaphor, that that's the point of the cave. Mm-hmm. That's what philosophers do. They they bring you. They, they come back to the cave and they say, hey, come with me. Let me show you the way out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, it's great just to talk about, like you get to share it with the people in your life who you care about and you get to bond over this thing that you've both enjoyed and that has this sort of subtle, deep meaning to it. But it's also, you know, it's a way of helping them to see that story, to see the bigger world, to see A, what video games have to offer and B, what the greater world of you know, self-awareness and intellectual consideration has to offer. Like this would be a great game for you to recommend to, you know, a teenager or an adolescent to sort of like, you know, we, we, we bandy about the term woke these days, but you know, in a real sense, like have their intellectual awakening, encourage it, um, let them experiment and wonder. Um, and then on the other side, it is to go out and, to do those things, to, to, you know, reap the rewards of an intellectual awakening, go and play other video games, go and read other books, go, go and see the world with new eyes. Um, as you know, Tolkien and Chesterton would have wanted, uh, like this game is so much about sort of breaking out of your own habits and your own consumerist sort of bubble that you build around yourself. So, you know, go and do, um, go and be free uh i love that i i I actually was playing this on on an airplane recently um i was sitting next to my wife steph and she was playing along with me and suggested a lot of the combos that i had been missing up to that point nice um so it's like you can you can sit there and play together with somebody of course you can be out in the world you know playing and and people will look over and wonder what you're doing (laughs) laughing to yourself uh but yeah, and and I think when you do put it down and you are no longer actually playing the game in some way, you know, it, it should stick with you um, in, in some of those uh, ways of, of looking at the world. Um, and so since that's the kind of thing that we like to do, um, we are going to continue here with some, some new video games that we'll discuss as long as um, time permits. Uh, yep. <laughs> and the world doesn't either freeze or blow up or, you know, uh, yep. uh, we're, we're going to do, um, we're going to try to prioritize some, some worthwhile games, of course, with that in mind. And so, uh, final fantasy six, uh, released in the States as three, right? That's yes. the one we're going to do next. Yep. All right. So, um, if you're following off, you're playing along, that's, that's where we're headed next. Um, we're also interested in collaborating and, um, kind of responding to other people doing similar things uh, in this kind of space um, on social media, on YouTube, whatever it might be. So that's something you can look for in the near future here too. Um, But of course, you know, we're going about our lives as teachers in the meantime as well. So um, I know you're teaching some mythology and uh, philosophy and humanities, right? Are you going to incorporate 
some video games into your assignments there? I, I'm really tempted. Um, <laughs> I almost always give an assignment at the end of the semester that says like, go out and find something in the world that corresponds with what you've, what you've read or talked about in class. Um, and, and I've gotten some interesting responses. Like in my humanities class, we, we do, we primarily base the curriculum around the stories of Don Juan and Faust. And the very first time I taught the course, I had this student come up to me like at the end of one class when we'd been talking about a Faust story and he's like, Cuphead. Oh my gosh. Cuphead is a Faust story. And I'm like, yes, yes it is. And it was like <laughs> one of those great teacher moments. But you know, Cuphead is this wonderful little indie game, like, viciously difficult but wonderfully satisfying and the whole premise is it's like an old 1930s like mickey mouse cartoon about two guys who you know make a deal with the devil they're gambling in the devil's casino and as a result like they have to go around and collect souls for the devil and that's the that's the game like you go around fighting bosses taking their souls bring them to the devil um and he's like yeah that's that's a faust narrative so so i i always try and I open the door for it, even if I don't necessarily explicitly command it. Mm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm actually seriously thinking about it this year, um, especially because I'm doing the mythology course. And I have said on a couple of occasions to several friends that uh, the little indie game that came out, got to be like five years now, called the Pathion, mm. is a spectacular treatment of Greek myth. Um, like the art style looks like Greek pottery with the with the sort of you know, black on burnished orange color scheme and the, the sort of silhouetted figures of that very particular style. Like it does that right, but it also tells the myths right. Like your interactions with all of the gods are pitch perfect. They're not, they're not just rehashing old myths, but they're also like not, you know, God of War-esque. And then you beat the crap out of a god because you're awesome. Like, <laughs> it's not really machismo or anything like that like it recognizes what each god would do if challenged um so it's really interesting and i'm kind of like i'm still building the curriculum i'm not sure what all i'm going to include and i suspect it would be fairly difficult for me to do that but i kind of relish the idea of like sticking one of my extra credit assignments as go play apotheon and tell me if it's a good treatment of greek myth Hey, um, yeah, that I mean, that sounds like one we should play before too long as well, actually. Um, yep. And uh, you sent me a whole slew of these games that yeah. I would never have encountered on my own because um, I'm just not plugged into it the way you are. And I, I think that, you know, that kind of spreading the good news is, is a worthwhile um, aspect of this endeavor as well. So I, that that's something we got to got to get going on our on our like uh, presence, right? In the, in the social media, in the maybe like a mailing list or something fun like that, you know, who knows? There's the, the world's our oyster at this point, Ben. Um, future is bright. <laughs> future is so bright. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, been, it's been delightful playing Little Inferno with you. And um, I hope that we get to continue in, in the same vein sometime soon here. Yep, look forward to it. Right. Cool, I'll take it easy. Till then, YouTube. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our discussion of Little Inferno. A special thanks to Tomorrow Corporation for letting us use their music whenever it was appropriate. For more content like this, or if you just want to follow our progress, please visit us at videogameacademia.wordpress.com.